0: Turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Last week we looked at the first 10 verses of this chapter, which are a, a beautiful, poignant, powerful expression of God's grace to us. Verses 1 through 10 uh, of chapter 2 is, is all about a, a vertical reality, right? The, the relationship of sinful man to, to holy God redeemed and restored through the grace of God in Christ. And the verses we'll look at today, verses 11 through 22, are, are it's all about a, a horizontal reality. The, the actual achievement and the necessary outworking of peace and deep relationship between those who have been reconciled to God through Christ. So if verses 1 to 10 tell us of uh, the gospel grace that's made sinners right with God, then verses 11 through 22 tell us of a gospel community where grace has made sinners right with one another. So you see a very clear sort of progression and, and, and flow of thought here from the Apostle Paul as he's focused us so, uh, so well in these first 10 verses on the grace of God that's poured out on us through Jesus Christ, That by grace, through faith, the vehicle of faith, he's imparted new life to us. Those who were spiritually dead have been made alive together with Christ. And now he wants us to see that that's not the end, right? That it doesn't stop with a sinner reconciled to God because the sinner's reconciliation to God brings about simultaneously a horizontal relational reconciliation to other sinners who have been reconciled to God. And so he wants to focus our attention today on the, the gospel community that is a result of the redemption that Christ purchased on the cross. In order to see this, we're going we're to start by looking at how the passage begins and how it ends. So don't get ahead of me. We're going to look at how it begins and then at how it ends. So if you look at verse 11 and 12, it describes the, the alienation and the hopelessness of particularly the Gentiles. He begins by addressing non-Jewish people, non-Jewish uh, Christians in, in this context. Uh, uh, the, the alienation and hopelessness of Gentiles. So look with me at verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is a desperate predicament. What a hopeless wasteland that we all lived in, apart from Christ, separated from God separate from Christ, separated from the, the people of God, the people of Israel, having no hope without God in the world. Now, if you skip ahead to the end of this chapter, look at verses nineteen through twenty-two. It describes a drastically different situation where every Gentile plight of verses eleven and twelve has been transformed into a a benefit. Look at verses nineteen, look at verse nineteen and then twenty-two. I'm actually going to read just a little bit of it verse 19 so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and skipping down to 22 it says in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for god by the spirit what happened there's this drastic change between verses 11 and 12 where there was all this separation and alienation and and, and hopelessness, right? And now in verse 19 and and verse 22 at the end of this passage Uh, You're no longer strangers, no longer aliens. You're, You're members of the household of God. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You're being built together into a temple. It makes us ask, what happened in verses 13 through 18 that made such a drastic difference, that turned things around for these Gentiles? Well, let's look together now and we'll get the answer. Verses 13 through 18. You were separated without God, without hope, verse 13. But now... and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we, have, we both have access in one spirit to the father grace got in the way Christ accomplished the peace and the reconciliation of these different, disparate peoples into one new humanity. Here's the big idea. If you only remember this one kind of phrase as a banner over this passage, here it is. The grace that's made us right with God makes us right with each other. The grace that's made us right with God makes us right with each other. The very same grace at work through the very same ministry purchased by the very same sacrifice makes us right with God and makes us right with one another. Now the passage tells that story by progressing through three main movements if you will. And though we read the passage a bit out of order, I think you can see the progression. Number one, there's the predicament. Gentiles are separated from God and from his people. The second movement is there's a solution. Christ makes peace through his cross. And then third is the, the result. Gentiles and Jews are united to God and to each other. Or if you wanted to put those in shorter little phrases, the movements are like this peoples divided peace provided a people united i don't normally have rhyming points but it seemed to work today so there you go if that helps you remember it peoples divided peace provided a people united so let's look at these movements one at a time and find what god's spirit is calling us to in these verses now the first thing to point out just as an observation is that verse 11 contains the only imperative verb in the entire first half of this letter. All my grammar nerds out there, you know an imperative verb is one that is spoken as a command. Shut the door. That's an imperative verb, right? Pick up the cup. That's an imperative, that's a command, right? And chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians are so filled with the indicative verbs, that is, the statements of fact, of reality. Christ has done this. God has given you this grace. Jesus was uh, crucified and, and made peace. All of these, these are just realities that he's just stating. This is fact, 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 fact. This is the only imperative verb in the entire first half of this letter. And it's simply this. Remember. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were separated. Remember. It is so important to remember, to to look back with conscious awareness of where we've been so that we see what God has done and we can live in the light of that new reality. So people's Divided, eleven and twelve. It's all about the, the 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 two people groups: the Jewish people and the non-Jewish peoples. Right? Any people group, ethnic group that's not Jewish is Gentile. Right? So it's a very broad umbrella term. And it's all about how the Gentiles specifically were separated from God and from God's people. So you can see that very clearly. He addresses directly, you Gentiles. And so the first couple of verses here, he's aiming right at non-Jewish Christians, all right? He's writing to churches in the the region of Ephesus here, and so who would be predominantly Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians. He says, you were at that time, at one time, separated, right? And so he goes through this list of all of the the predicament the plight of gentiles and you can you can see it as you go uh, first they lacked the sign of god's covenant right so he said you you were called the uncircumcision by that which is the circumcision right so circumcision was the the physical sign under the old covenant of of the the people's belonging to that covenant and to the people of god and as gentiles who didn't grow up uh, weren't born into families that were uh, in that covenant and in that uh, that people, that was not a reality for them. That was not something that they had and so he says that this sign, this this indicator that you belong to the people of God, you don't have it and therefore you're looked down upon by the Jews. You can see that as well. It says called the uncircumcision by uh, the by that which is called the circumcision. That's a bit of a term of derision, right? The Gentile is the uncircumcised one, meaning He's not one of us. He's not one of God's, right? There, there's, a, there's a kind of a derision that, that was, uh, that with which the Jews looked upon these non-Jewish peoples. You lacked the sign of God's covenant, and therefore you were looked down upon by the Jews. Next, you were separated from Christ remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Now, if all of the blessings, the spiritual blessings that Paul has been listing and celebrating and elaborating on, for example, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, if all of these spiritual blessings are reserved for those who are in Christ, right, those who have been united to Christ, then to be apart from Christ is a desolate place indeed. It is to be cut off from all of these spiritual blessings. If you are separated from Christ, guess what? You're not chosen. You're not redeemed. You're not forgiven. You don't have an inheritance. You're not sealed by the Spirit. You're separated from Christ. And by the way, that means you're under God's wrath, which points us back to chapter two, verse three, where it said, we all lived and were by nature children of wrath, meaning we were storing up for ourselves the wrath of God, the just anger of God against our sin. You were separated from Christ. You were, they were alienated. They were alienated from God's chosen people, Israel. Right? So he says you were separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That is the, the people group, the, the identity of, the, of being ethnically Jewish. And thus, without all the blessings that came to the Jewish people through their uh, position as God's chosen people, the law of God, all the blessings of obedience that he promised, God's presence, unique presence with them, all of those things don't belong to the Gentiles. And so he says, uh, at that time, that is before God did something decisive, you were separated from the people of Israel and all of her blessings next it says that they were not recipients of god's covenant promises you see that strangers to the covenants of promise thus strangers to his blessings especially the ones concerning the coming messiah the promises and the prophecies and uh, and all that god promised his people in their salvation, in their restoration, in their preservation, and in the coming of the Messiah who would save them and rule over them in justice and peace and righteousness, Gentiles were separated from that, strangers to those covenants of promise. As a result of that, they were without hope, helpless to change their desperate situation God is not with you. Not included in the eternal inheritance to come. The hope that belongs to the Christian that Paul celebrated back in chapter 1. You've been given as internal inheritance and sealed with the Spirit until you keep it. None of that belongs, belonged to the Gentiles apart from Christ. All of this kind of, and then without God in the world. God's not with you. God's presence is not with you. God's blessing is not on you. This is the way that it was for Gentile Christians before God decisively intervened. William Hendrickson summarizes it like this. Their position was that they were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. That is the world in which Gentiles lived before God did something notice Gentiles were separated from God yes so verse 11 he said you were separated from Christ verse 12 at the end he said without God so separated from God yes but Paul's emphasis here is on their separation from the Jewish people You, Gentiles, were separated from God and aliens alienated from the people of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. His emphasis here is that the the Gentile peoples were, before Christ, separated, alienated from the Jewish people who had been the, the covenant people of God. He's concerned here to show a fundamental breach, an irreparable division between Jews and non-Jews. He expresses that uh, in, in a couple of different phrases that occur in the next section. So if you were look look at verse 13, he speaks of, of those who, you who once were far off. So again, there's this distance. If the people of Israel, as God's covenant people are with God, close to God, then the Gentiles are far away. You once were out there. You were far off. And then in verse 14, he speaks of a dividing wall of hostility between them. There was something that kept them apart from each other with hostility. There was real energy and and vehemence and, 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 and hatred behind what kept Gentiles and Jews apart. So he's concerned with us to see this division. And since he wants us to to see and understand the nature of the, the Jewish and Gentile division, I think we should think for a moment about the nature of the divide between Jews and Gentiles. In his book, Bloodlines, John Piper identifies three aspects of this Jew and Gentile divide that I found helpful. There was a religious divide, first of all. I mean, the Jews had God's covenants, God's word, the promises of God's Messiah, a fundamental identity as God's chosen people, that's who they were. The Gentiles, in the context of Ephesus specifically, were likely polytheists. Like they probably believed in, in many gods. They probably worshipped uh, fa- many false gods. They may have been known for their uh, immorality and wicked practices, so The Jews in their religious identity probably looked upon Gentiles in this region as very uh, low and debased and wicked people. There was a a, a religious divide here. They could not be more disparate in terms of their worldview, their theology, their morality. There was a religious divide among Jews and Gentiles. There was a cultural divide divide, a cultural divide. Jewish rituals and, and festivals, you know, the the, the very ritual of, of circumcision that we've already talked about, the observance of Sabbath, the the you know the dietary laws that Jews would live by, the dress code, all of these things that God commanded under the old covenant to distinguish the people of Israel from the nations around them. Right? He, God wanted Israel to look different than everyone else in the world because he wanted a visible public uh, demonstration that God is holy, God is unique, God is separate from sinners. And so in the same way, he or sort of as an analogy, he 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 called Israel to live in these distinct ways to to distinguish them from the world around them. And so these cultural, social distinctions would have naturally created a, a sharp divide between Jews and non-Jewish peoples who, of course, wouldn't adhere to the same dietary laws and dress codes and observance of Sabbaths and, and religious festivals like that. So there was a, there was a cultural divide just the way that we do life. Jewish life was very different from non-Jewish life. And then finally, there's a racial There was a racial divide between Jews and Gentiles. The identity of God's chosen people was a fundamentally ethnic identity. Their claim to be the the people of God and the children of Abraham was quite literal in the sense of physical genealogy and, and an ethnic heritage, right? God chose Abraham to make a nation. God chose his son Isaac, not his son ishmael god chose jacob not esau and on it goes the line of grace continues through particular ethnic choices genealogical choices that god made to establish this ethnic identity among the people of god the people of israel And further than that, there's strong evidence in the New Testament itself that the Jews had very strong disdain for at least certain other ethnic groups, such as Samaritans. That's pretty well known that Jews really looked down on Samaritans. And perhaps a general sense of superiority to kind of all other ethnic groups. After all, we alone are the chosen people of God, right? We have uh, God's blessings and presence and all of these other people groups who aren't Jewish don't have those same things. And so there was probably a a, a sense of superiority that that seemed to to breed among the people of, of Israel at this time. So a religious divide, a cultural divide, a racial divide, these were deep and real and, and, and complex divisions between Jewish people and non-Jewish peoples, Gentile peoples. So I think that Piper is correct when he concludes, the divide here was as big or bigger than any divide that we face today among Anglo, African, Latino, Asian, or Native Americans. Right? And there's a lot of racial division and strife and tensions and brokenness in our world, in our society today. And I think Piper's right to say the divisions that existed between Jews and Gentiles at this time would have been as substantial or more substantial than that. And so the fact that God is able to bring about a reconciliation, to bring about a killing of hostility, to bring about a peace between these disparate and divided peoples ought to instill in us a real hope and a real vision for what the gospel can do. So the religious, cultural, racial divisions between the Jewish people and all Gentile peoples were numerous and deep, and they required a heaven-sized solution to overcome them. Praise God, that's what he gave. Verses 13 through 18, we read about a peace Provided a peace provided, I love the words that begin verse thirteen, but now, oh the grace of God, this is where you were, but now it's changed it's different, reminds us of the very contrast that Paul made back in in verse three of this same chapter where he he spoke of the ways that we all. As spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, walked along the course of the world, following the devil, following our flesh, right? Uh, carrying out the passions of our flesh and all of these things. And he said in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ. So once again, we have this same interruption of divine grace. You were hopelessly, helplessly divided separated from God, separated from the people of God, but now, but now, something has changed. Something radical and revolutionary has happened that's changed the entire reality, that's rewritten the story. What was it? Look again at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you Who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What happened? The cross. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to satisfy God's wrath against sin and purchase redemption from slavery for all his people. By his blood. The cross of Christ alone accomplishes the reconciliation of these divided peoples to one another. Jesus Christ died on the cross and by his blood, by his sacrifice, he brought near those who once were far off. Now I want you to notice a really significant pronoun change This is the stuff of of, of language and and Bible study as we're looking and observing that we need to pay attention to. He began, as you remember, with you, talking to you Gentiles. Of course, Paul is speaking as a Jewish person, a Jewish Christian. So he says, you Gentiles were separated from God and and, and alienated from, uh, from the people of Israel. You who once were far off, but now... In verse 14, suddenly look at this. Verse 14. For he himself is whose peace? Our peace. Doesn't it say he's your peace? He's our peace. It's changed. And from here on out, in the rest of this passage, it's it's us and it's we and it's together. This is where it has gone because of the cross. The cross of Christ changes our pronouns. The cross of Christ brings us together as a united people. How beautiful to think of Jesus as our peace. I love this in verse 14. He himself is our peace. He doesn't just credit Jesus with achieving peace, which is true. He personifies him as peace itself he himself is our peace any true lasting peace between dissimilar and divided peoples is centered on the person and work of jesus christ so check out check out what jesus accomplished by his blood so just like we got a list of bad stuff, of the plight and predicament of Gentiles before Christ, now we get a list of amazing things that Jesus accomplished by dying, that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Number one, he's made us both one. He himself is our peace who has made us both one. More on that in just a second. But just note it. Second, he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The, the, the dividing wall here may entail something like, uh, like the Mosaic Law, you know, the, the Jewish uh, sort of rituals and things that kept Gentiles out. But, but that it's a wall of hostility and not just a wall of. It's not only ordinances and laws, right? It's a wall of hostility. It indicates that there is an antagonistic disposition between these ethnic groups. And at the cross, Christ overcame it. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Three, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, the ordinances here, I think, are the ones that set Israel apart from other nations, and they've been fulfilled. Set aside and are no longer to divide Jewish and Gentile believers from one another. Christ abolished the law expressed in ordinances and set it aside, which we're also told he did in Hebrews chapter 8. This he set aside in favor of a new and better covenant. And now we get some reasons, some of the sort of divine motivation. <laughs> behind why he did this. Why did Jesus tear down the wall, right? Why did Jesus abolish the law of commandments? Well, look at verse 15 and 16. Abolishing the law of commandments in ordinances. That, so that, here's the reason. So that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, that he might create one new man in place of the two. That's the first reason we're given. Why did he kill this hostility, remove this dividing wall, take, set aside all of the laws and ordinances that kept them apart so that instead of two peoples, he has one. There were Jews, there were Gentiles, now there's just one people, one new man, one new humanity in Christ. And number two, so that he might reconcile us both to God. Who's us both? It's Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So check this out. God used to have one people, the Jews. And then he sent his Messiah, Jesus, and some of the Jews started believing in him and became Jewish Christians. But a bunch of them didn't and still don't. And then some Gentiles started believing in him and became uh, Gentile Christians, right? And so now there, there's all this confusion. And as you read through the New Testament, you can get the sense of this of the, the tension and the weirdness and the confusion as they're trying to figure out how all this works. Wait, so so should Gentiles live like Jews now, right? So for a Gentile to come to faith in the Jewish Messiah, does that mean that that non-Jewish peoples need to start acting like Jews. Maybe they, maybe they should get circumcised, right? Maybe they should start living by the kind of dietary laws and, and dress codes and observing the Sabbath and all, all these things. So maybe Gentiles should start living like uh, like Jews uh, in order to, to, to be accepted. Or uh, or is it more like that? There's sort of two different pathways to God now, right? There's a there's a Jewish pathway to God, uh, and and a, and a Gentile pathway to God, right? So if you're Jewish you come to God one way and if you're a Gentile you come to God a different way is that what's going on now? wrong there's one new man in place of the two heaven doesn't have a Jew section and a Gentile section there's just the redeemed people section and it consists of both Jews and Gentiles There's one new man in place of the two. And he reconciled us both to God. How? Through the cross. The reconciliation of Jewish people to God and Gentile people to God happens the same way. Namely, by grace, through faith in Christ. That's it. There's only one way. There's only one pathway to God. There's not a Jewish pathway and a non-Jewish pathway. There is only the one pathway that goes through the cross of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And when you follow that pathway through faith, you are reconciled to God and to his people. He reconciled us both to God. You know how a Gentile gets saved from God's wrath? and adopted into his family by repenting of his sins and trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you know how a Jewish person gets saved from God's wrath and adopted into his family? By repenting of his sins and trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no difference. There is no second way for anyone to be reconciled to God He must trust in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished at the cross. That's it. There's no second pathway. This is not a plan A, plan B situation. This is not a business class, coach class seating arrangement. The people of God from now through eternity is one new humanity created for God through the death of Jesus on the cross, comprised of all Jews and non-Jews who have trusted upon Jesus Christ for life and salvation. That is the eternal reality of the people of God. There are not peoples of God. There's one. And it is gloriously diverse and beautifully united because of the cross of Jesus. So in the cross, in a kind of a poetic way, Paul says that that Jesus came and preached peace. I don't think this is a literal preaching, although certainly you could refer back to Jesus' actual earthly preaching and see uh, peace there. But I think he means here metaphorically in the work that he accomplished by his death, he He, as it were, preaches peace, preaches a message of, if you will trust in me, you can be reconciled to God and to one another. He preached peace. And who did he preach peace to? He didn't just come and preach peace to the Gentiles. He preached peace to you who were far off. And he preached peace to those who were near. So there's a sense in which the Jewish people were nearer, Perhaps but the peace was accomplished by the very same reality, the very same work. And in case he hasn't made it clear, verse 18, he says, Through Christ we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see the triune God at work here? Through the work of Christ the Son, we have access by the Holy Spirit to God the Father. All three persons of the triune God at work in glorious unity to save his people and reconcile them to himself and to each other. To quote Piper one more time, he says, The whole picture here is not that we, Jew and Gentile, move into these blessings on separate parallel tracks. Jews without Jesus and Gentiles with Jesus or some variation of that, but that we move into them together on one track through one savior, one cross, one body, one new man, and one spirit to one father. The picture here is that the true Israel becomes the church of Christ and the church of Christ emerges as the true Israel. And what unites this new people is is Jesus by the blood of his cross. Praise God. So in verses 11 and 12, Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles were peoples divided. And in verses 13 and 18, we've seen peace provided by the cross of Christ. And so now, the final section of this passage, verses 19 through 22, we see a people united. A people united All the things listed in verses 11 and 12 as the plight and predicament of the Gentiles apart from Christ are now seen as remedied, as redeemed through Jesus Christ. We're no longer strangers, but we're fellow citizens with the saints, right? So a stranger would be somebody from another country. And now he's regarded as a citizen, that's, that's what that means. No longer strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. You're not a stranger anymore. You're, you're one of us. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're no longer aliens, but members of God's household. An alien would have been a, a foreigner living in a strange land, right? And now he's a member of the family. It's as though the door was opened and a, a chair was added to the table. And somebody said, hey, come come sit with us, eat with us, be at our table, be a part of our family. That's what's happened. And because of that, because there's this, this adoption reality, uh, the, the Gentiles now in the people of God are heirs of all the rights and privileges of sonship. That's why it's so important when we see in the New Testament the reality of what Paul says, the ad- adoption as sons. I hope that as women, you don't feel left out by that. Because it's not just a misogynistic, sort of male dominated thing going on there. What it is is it's saying men and women trusting in Christ have all of the rights and privileges of the firstborn son in the family. Daughters, you get it too. You have the same rights, you are the heir of the same benefits and blessings. You're no longer foreigners, you're members of the family. And then he says that that your stones in God's building, in, in the household that he's putting together, you yourselves are, as as we saw in First Peter as well, first Peter chapter two, you yourself like living stones are being built together. And so there's God, God has this building, this household, and it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I think he means there uh, to communicate the foundation of the gospel and the word of God that was entrusted to and delivered by apostles and prophets that God appointed. So built upon the foundation of God's word and the gospel. And then he says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone Cornerstone was in the architecture of that day the most important stone in the building. It bore the weight of the structure and it keeps the wall angles straight so that the house would be secure and stable and steady. That's Christ. Your stone's in the walls and floors of of this house, but the cornerstone is Christ. He's the one who keeps it together. His work on the cross is what seals the whole thing solid forever. And then finally, at the end of verse 22, he says, In Him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God no longer lives in a temple made by hands. He lives in His people, the united one new man that He's created for Himself jewish and gentile peoples alike through faith in jesus christ god dwells by his spirit let me give you a couple of applications here before we before we wrap up because of the reality here right because of the uh what we used to be separated divided now christ has accomplished our peace become our peace And now we're this united people in God. Here's here's a couple of realities. Christian life is church life. Kind of summarizing Jonathan Lehman, his little book on church membership there. As you walk through the New Testament, you see very plainly that Christian life in the New Testament is church life. There's There's a community Focus. There's a a people of God dynamic at play in the ordinary Christian life that is undeniable in the New Testament. In order to display the blood-bought peace of the gospel, we must pursue intentional, sincere, sometimes awkward community with one another. The grace that makes us right with God makes us right with each other. He's purchased for himself this gospel community and this is where the Christian life is to be lived out. To state it negatively, if you're not pursuing, investing in, growing in relationships of deepening authenticity within the church, aimed at imparting and receiving spiritual good then you are not allowing the gospel that you profess to bear its full fruit in your life this is a reality of what it means to be not just a child of god but a brother and a sister to others who have been reconciled to god we lean in we 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 help we sharpen we challenge we encourage we share We identify with, we sympathize with, we celebrate with, we weep with. Stated another way, in order to live a faithful Christian life as one reconciled to God by the cross of Christ, you must live a life of interconnectedness with those that God has reconciled to each other by that same cross. This is what the church is for, this is why the church exists. Lone Ranger Christianity is not New Testament Christianity. I love Jesus, but I can do without his church is a slogan not of a Christian with a strong, independent spirit, but of one progressively weakened by his isolation from the community of saints and endangered by spiritual pride. We need to humbly lean in to the community of grace that God has purchased for himself second application and then I'll be done we have to actively pursue the unity that Christ purchased, it's not automatic it's, it's a reality right? but it's not automatically finished, there's a distinction to be made between the theological reality of this united people of God and the practical pursuit of it in our lives And I think we all sense that. There's a a gap between what we believe to be true about what Christ has done and where we actually live. Christ actually tore down the dividing wall and actually killed the hostility. He's actually accomplished the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile and any and all racial and ethnic groups within Christ. Yet, there remains a responsibility among the disparate people of God to cultivate this purchased unity, to appropriate this reconciliation in real attitudes, speech, actions, and relationships within the church. To the extent that we fail to fight against partiality or isolation and to contend for the reconciliation among his people, there will always be a gap between the purchased unity of Christ and the lived experience of the church. A gospel-centered church is a diverse yet united community. It must be. When we consider the hostility-killing cross of Christ and the way his death forcibly tore down the wall that divided Jews and Gentiles by placing them on the same footing as sinners in need of grace and providing them the same redemption through faith in Jesus, then we can easily see how all the various factors of identity, personality, and culture that tend to cause division and mistrust among people have all been overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ. So just to apply this to the sort of racial moment, the, the tension that we see and feel... Our racial and ethnic identities do not fundamentally define us. The world does that, right? The world says, what's the most true of you is your racial or ethnic identity. This is who you are, irreducibly. That's not so for those of us who are in Christ, because we have a new fundamental identity. We're no longer defined by our racial identities. We're defined by our union with Christ. We're his. We're children of God in Christ. That's who we are. So we're no longer defined by our racial identities, and therefore we must no longer be divided by our racial identities. Our society is deeply divided about issues of race and racism, how it's defined, how it's perceived, the nature and degree of the problems, the perspective solutions to it. There is wide and vehement disagreement on all of these matters. But there's one thing that Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, has to say to us that's very clear. Christians, of all people, should be those most ready to denounce racism in all its forms and those most eager to pursue racial harmony, understanding, and love within the church of Jesus Christ. A church united in common faith and love, despite real and obvious differences in race, age, personality, culture, socioeconomic status, is a potent witness to the reconciling power of the gospel. And we have to work for that. We have to pray for God to cultivate that in us to change our hearts about it, and to make us intentional in the pursuit of and the cultivation of the unity in diversity that Christ purchased for his people. The spiritual blessings that we've been given in Christ flow to us freely by the grace of God and the gospel. And the grace that's made us right with God makes us right with each other. Let's be sure, friends, that we don't discount the beauty of the peace that Christ purchased for us on the cross by neglecting the essential place of gospel community in our formation as disciples of Jesus and in our effectiveness as his witnesses in the world. Let's pray.